0: Way back in 1987, Virginia Owens, a professor at Texas A&M, was teaching English to freshmen, and she had them read the Sermon on the Mount. And even though it was Texas, the Bible Belt, most of her students had never read it. And these are some of the comments that these students made afterwards. One of them said, There's an old saying, you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. Another said... The stuff that churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it might be a sin or not. And then another said, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Another said, I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. And then finally, someone said, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. In response to all this disgust from her students, Virginia Owens, the professor, said, at this point, I began to be encouraged. There is something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. In a sense, These students understood the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. For Jesus does say, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Sermon on the Mount is challenging. It's convicting. It doesn't let us off the hook. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, and he said, in the Sermon on the Mount, we experience the holiness of God. If we read it honestly, we'd collapse and say, God, save us from the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's the Gospel of Matthew where we find the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus kicks things off with the Beatitudes. And I understand that Chris has been preaching on some of them. And they are these whole series of blessings. And they're rightfully famous. People who don't even read the Bible have heard of blessed are the meek or blessed are the uh, peacemakers. The Beatitudes begin with radical good news. You are blessed when you least expect it. You are blessed when you're poor in spirit, when you've got nothing, when you're empty. You are blessed when you mourn, when you're in sorrow. You're blessed when you're persecuted because of righteousness. You are blessed. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus also gives us a picture of the kind of people we are called to be. Like, blessed are the merciful and blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And this brings us to the beatitude that we're gonna look at today. One short little verse, just 11 words. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Kind of seems straightforward, right? Obvious, purity isn't exactly rocket science. This isn't nuclear physics we're talking about. Even in the realm of theology, it's not like we're talking about the doctrine of predestination or the millennial kingdom or the trinity. It's purity of heart. How hard can it be? Well, let's talk about nuclear physics then. (laughs) You know that a pellet of nuclear fuel, enriched uranium, weighs six grams, less than half an ounce. But that tiny little pellet can produce the energy equivalent to that generated by a ton of coal, or 120 gallons of oil. Thank you, internet. Nuclear power is powerful. Six grams of nuclear fuel, or a ton of coal. Well, just like nuclear physics deals with the phenomenal energy potential of the atom, purity of heart is a thing of immense power. Purity. This simple, so easily overlooked thing is a matter of great power. How? The pure in heart will see God. Purity of heart is more powerful than we assume, more worthwhile than we think. It's this incredibly awesome thing, and we think it's lame, old-fashioned, no fun. We live in a world that's dulled our senses. We hardly know what purity even is anymore. Even worse, purity gets a bad rap, it's seen as prudishness, it's boring, it means missing out, and who wants to miss out? Like the song says, we'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. That's the first problem. And the second is this, we don't really understand what a life of purity entails. Too often it's reduced to nothing more than legalism a bunch of rules. And while we're busy keeping the rules or arguing about the rules or, or arguing that the rules don't matter and we can do what we want, we miss out on what purity of heart really is. And then there's a third problem. We don't appreciate how purity of heart comes about in a person. How do we actually become pure? So let's look at all this today. And it all overlaps, the how, the what, the why, the power of purity, the life of purity, how we become pure. But let's start with how pure purity is. Now, Jesus wasn't the first one to talk about this. If you go back to the Psalms, you'll find this passage which we just heard. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, there once was a woman who recalled learning these very verses when she was a little girl. Her grandmother would read them to her from the Bible, and upon hearing these verses, she knew that even though she wasn't eight years old yet, that here was the most important thing in the world, to be able to be in the place of the Lord, to be with God. And then, thinking very literally like children do, she thought through how she could manage to do this. She wasn't too sure about the, the pure and heart part, but she knew she could get clean hands. And so for the next few days, she made sure to wash her hands extra carefully. She knew she could at least get that much of the requirement down. Now, it so happened that her grandmother soon read her this psalm again. I mean, what a great grandmother. And the little girl looked down at her own well-scrubbed hands, obviously pleased with herself. And her grandmother, who was pretty sharp, said, you know, it doesn't mean that you should keep your hands washed. It means that you should never use your hands to do something wrong. Ouch. Okay, we know that, right? And we try. The fact you're even here tonight means you're probably doing pretty well, right? Yeah. But you know, it's not that simple. Purity of heart isn't graded on a curve. Back in the 1930s and 40s, before he'd written any of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis wrote a science fiction trilogy. And in the middle book called Paralandra, the hero, the good guy, the one who saves the day, encounters a pair of angelic beings. Now, angels are sinless, unfallen, pure. And one of the angels looks on this man, a frail human compared to them, and he says to the other one, In his best thoughts, there are such things mingled as if we thought them, our light would perish. Did you catch that? The angel is saying that even a very good person's very best thoughts are touched by sin, they're blemished, they're impure. And that if the angels themselves were to even think those things, they would be unmade. And he's exactly right. Everything we do is mixed. We have no pure thoughts or motives or desires. The theological term for this is total depravity. And that doesn't mean we are totally sinful. It just means that, every, that everything we do, everything we think is touched by sin. There's no part of us that we can point to and say that it is utterly and perfectly good and pure. So, we've already looked at nuclear physics. Let's dumb it down a bit. Let's just do some arithmetic. If I just commit five sins a day, that's a pretty good day, I'd be well north of 80,000 sins already. But the reality is we tend to think of only the really bad things we do as sinful. All too often we let ourselves off the hook. But everything we do is mixed. We have no pure thoughts or motives. It isn't so much that I have this pile of 80,000 sins over here that need to be dealt with. The problem is I am sinful. I am a sinful being. And then Jesus comes along and said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But no one is pure. No one's hands are clean. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Or as Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Suddenly, it seems like Jesus' blessings aren't so great after all. Suddenly, it seems like the gospel is bad news. And in fact, the longer I live, the more unpure in heart I realize I am. Paul goes on to say, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? we could go on and on in this vein. I could quote verse after verse, but you get the point. If we're honest, we recognize this problem in ourselves. So then what's the answer? We could go the way of the Pharisees and make up a bunch of rules. But Jesus makes it clear that's not the way. Now, far be it from me to say anything goes. That's not the answer either. If we're going to get a handle on what purity of heart looks like, we need to start with the heart. We have to start on the inside, not on the outside with all the rules. And so to do that, I want to contrast two kinds of prayers, two different orientations of the heart, if you will. One is the self-oriented prayer of the heart, and the other the God-oriented prayer of the heart. We're gonna start with the first one. And I can describe this self-oriented heart prayer in exacting detail because I know all about it. People pray all kinds of selfish prayers and not all of them are terrible. Plenty of them are just you know wishful thinking or for their preferences or desires that are, that are fine. Maybe they're not terribly spiritual, but they're all right. We pray that we'll do well on that test, get that job, Avoid being stuck in traffic. I live in Seattle, I pray that all the time. We pray for the Seahawks to win and, well, God usually answers. We pray for the Mariners to win, it's less certain. We pray for good weather. I just did an outdoor wedding in Wisconsin and thunderstorms were on the forecast and they have serious thunderstorms over there. Believe me, people who never pray were praying that day. There's nothing wrong with wanting and praying for good weather or for your team to win or for things to go well, but the self-oriented prayer goes beyond all of that. It's the prayer of pure selfishness, and I have prayed that prayer. I have stood before God and laid it all out. On one occasion in particular, I prayed one of the most honest prayers of my life, I can picture exactly where I was, what I was thinking, and I finally put all of my usual justifications and rationalizations that I bring to God, I put that aside, I faced the Lord and I said what was on my heart. And this was my exact prayer. Lord, just give me what I want. And I meant it with all my heart. I didn't care if it was good for me, if it was what God wanted, if it would bring him honor and glory. None of that. I just wanted what I wanted. I'd been arguing with God about my circumstances in life, my lot in life, how things were going, and I wasn't happy. Looking back now, I can see how dissatisfaction and disappointment and envy had been eating at me. I can see a whole lot more about myself now than I did then. But it all came to a head, and the utter selfishness of my heart was revealed in that prayer. Just give me what I want. I really, I probably had gritted teeth and everything. This is the furthest thing from purity of heart it's the heart full of self. Why do I remember that moment and that prayer? Why can I picture it so clearly? Because it was so stark, and I was instantly convicted. Instantly, I knew I wasn't interested in God's ways, in your kingdom come, your will be done. I had lost all perspective, and I could only see what I wanted. And guess what? The Lord did not answer that prayer with a big fat, okay, Matt. (laughs) Now, maybe you're thinking, oh, wow, this guy has issues. And you'd be right. It's true. But is it just me? Maybe you haven't prayed that prayer so starkly, or maybe you have, but is that spirit lurking in your heart? There's another kind of prayer, and it's the exact opposite of my self-centered just-give-me-what-I-want prayer. And it's a prayer that Jesus modeled and the prayer that he lived. And you'll recognize it as soon as I mention it. And maybe you've already figured out what it is. It's, It's rightfully famous. But it's also radically misunderstood. No, it's not quite that. We understand it. We simply misuse it. We misapply it. We miss the point. His prayer goes like this. Not my will, but your will be done. You know the story. Jesus is in the garden praying. He's just celebrated the last supper with his disciples. He knows Judas will soon betray him. He knows the cross is coming. He's predicted it three times. He knows it's going to happen. There's no doubt. And yet he knows it will be excruciating. It's crucifixion. One of the most horrible ways to die ever invented by humanity. And so he prays, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. And yet not my will, but your will be done. You know how I usually hear that prayer prayed by Christians? When we want God to do something, but we're not sure God will really do it, and so we tack that on at the end as a kind of caveat. Now, it's good to be humble in our requests. It's good to recognize that we don't have it all figured out. And God's ways are not our ways. But when we use that prayer as just a caveat, as just a way to save face in case our prayers aren't answered, we miss the power of that prayer. We miss the point. Jesus' whole life exemplified, not my will, but your will be done. He explicitly said that he only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what the Father wished him to say. When the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus is humble of heart, he really means it. When Paul in Philippians says that Jesus emptied himself and gave up everything, he really means it. He didn't just do his own thing his whole life And then finally come to that point in the Garden of Gethsemane and then submit to the Father. No, he lived his whole life that way. And that's what we are called to as well. This prayer is a picture of purity of heart, to will what God wills, to want what God wants. And it all starts with an encounter. You know, more than any other disciple in the Gospels, it's Peter, of whom we're shown the long arc of his life and faith. The highs and the lows, the transformation that he went through, and how it all started with an encounter with Jesus. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Peter is working as a fisherman, Jesus is making a name for himself, he's preaching, healing, doing miracles, And after a long night of fishing, in which Peter and his companions caught nothing, it's finally morning, they're exhausted, Jesus says, go out again, and put your nets out again. And they do. And what happened? They caught a ton of fish. And what does Peter do? Does he jump for joy? Does he say, this is great, Jesus is a fish whisperer. We're gonna catch so much, we're gonna be rich. No. Instead, Peter is cut to the heart. He knows he's in the presence of something, someone, the likes of which he's never seen before. It's like when the prophet Isaiah had that first vision of God and on his throne, and Isaiah said, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. And so here, Peter falls to his knees before Jesus, and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He had an encounter with the Lord, and he got a glimpse of who Jesus was. And he also realized who he was, a sinful person, anything but pure and holy. But that's where it starts for each one of us, with an encounter, with a reckoning, with a recognition that we have not been what we ought to be. It means seeing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and knowing that we can't remain the same. Now, how did that encounter end for Peter? Well, Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And Peter left everything and followed him. And then, after that, everything was easy for Peter right? (laughs) Not so much. Becoming the people God calls us to be doesn't happen in an instant. It takes time. It takes a lifetime. Sometimes it's two step forward and one step back. Think about it. How are things purified? How are things refined? What does it take? Time, heat, and pressure. Back in the day, We used to sing this nice little song called Refiner's Fire. Have you ever sung that here? It goes like this. Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire, is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. It sounds so easy, but purity, holiness, isn't something we just simply choose and then go on with our lives actually being refined is hard. It can be painful. It means facing ugly truths about ourselves. It means change. It means confession, repentance, apologizing to people we've hurt, changing our ways, making amends. It means even now you'll be convicted of things in your heart that didn't even bother you before. It calls for endurance. And it's not for the faint of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What a promise. What power. What a gift. The world says purity is boring, it's lame, it means missing out. But Jesus says the pure receive the greatest gift of all God Himself. And everything else pales in comparison. Jesus is the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. The only one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord. And our hope is in him alone. Amen? And as we encounter him, as we look to him and follow him, then God begins to refine us, to purify us. This is what we are called to. We all know the way of the self just Just give me what I want. But we are called to something far better. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Amen? Amen.